We debated whether to show that or not. <laughs> but it's a pretty cool portrayal of what resurrection might be like other than I know it's going to be way better than that. <laughs> Last week, if you were here, we had our Easter message and I got up and I said, today I want to talk with you about what, what if the resurrection never happened? And I would imagine that we had maybe some atheists visiting who said to themselves, now this is my kind of Easter message. What if the resurrection never happened? Probably not realizing that it's straight out of 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul basically asking that same question. But doing so because there was a group in the church at Corinth that were saying that there was no resurrection. And so Paul basically is saying, okay, we'll go with your, your, uh, your thing there. Hypothetically, what does that mean if there is no resurrection, if no one has been raised from the dead? And we saw last week that there were seven things that, uh, that it would mean, and none of those are good. Doesn't mean that they're not true because they're not good, but they're not good. The last thing that Paul is wanting us to take from that is that he is suggesting that there is no resurrection. Because to the contrary, the whole point of 1 Corinthians 15 is that there is a resurrection. And what it means that Christ was raised from the dead. In fact, he reiterates the gospel very succinctly beginning in verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he goes on to talk about eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ, the disciples and, and others, including 500 at one time, who saw him alive. And then, of course, Paul himself, who had a vision of the risen Christ, saw Christ risen. So he's not suggesting that the resurrection didn't happen. He's wanting us to realize how important it is that it did. And then we've been studying this chapter for weeks now, and we saw that he goes on then to say that Christ is raised from the dead. He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God, and that he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And we see that uh, the Corinthians were wondering the same thing that we wonder about. Well, what is this resurrected body going to be like? Could you tell us? And he begins in verse 35 to describe what it's like. And essentially we saw our bodies will resemble what Christ's resurrected body was like. And we saw 15 characteristics of the resurrected body of Christ. And I can summarize them this way. He was physical. And that was, that's just one of the things I so badly want to come out of this series on resurrection is that we solidly get that our eternity and future as believers is in a physical world, the new earth, in physical bodies that are going to resemble the ones that we have now only be far better. In fact, everything you love about your body, you probably are going to have in eternity and whatever you don't like, either it won't bother you or you won't have it anymore. It's going to be it's going to be wonderful. So you then can see the Corinthians going, man, that sounds great. Now, when do we get this glorified body exactly? Could you kind of, could you help me understand that? And he begins then in verse 50 to talk about 
the when. And he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. This is what Jim just got done reading. We shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So the, the, the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ stand then in history as like two giant markers. Because in Christ's resurrection, he got his glorified body. In Christ's return, we get ours. And we will have them then forever. Now back in verse 25, you may recall that we, we read this, we read this statement. For he must reign, this is Christ, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Christ's resurrection defeats death. Christ's return destroys death. But how does this happen exactly? And Paul now answers that at the end of this chapter. This is the crescendo of chapter 15. And I think it is the crescendo of the entire letter. And here we've been studying it for two and a half years. And we're coming now to the the high point. So Bethelonians who've been studying Corinthians, I hope that you are ready to rejoice in what he has to say. There is much indeed to do. So let me read our passage Beginning in verse 54, when the imperishable, I'm sorry, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. May God use his word in our hearts today and bless it to us. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk the text. And when I say that, what I mean is we're just going to do, 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 do what the text says. We're just going to walk the text. And so we begin then in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. The first thing that Paul says is that when Jesus returns, we will be clothed for eternity. Clothed appropriately for eternity. It begins when the perishable puts on the imperishable. What? When is the when here? We're still in this section Dealing with the return of Christ. So when Christ returns, the perishable will put on the imperishable. Now you may remember two weeks ago we saw that he talks about the two kinds of Christians that there will be when Christ returns. Those that have already died and are in the grave and those that are alive. Those that are alive don't need to be resurrected. They're they're alive, but they need to be changed and glorified, right? Those that are dead, they need to be resurrected. And we see then him still dealing with these two groups. The perishable, those that have already died, will put on imperishable. They'll receive their glorified body, never to die again. The mortal, those who are alive when Christ returns, will put on immortality. Will never possibly die again. In both cases, 
They are putting on, the, the word there literally talks about clothing, okay? The redeemed are clothed then with bodies appropriate for an eternal kingdom. We are going to live forever. These bodies, last I checked, don't last that long. You might get a good 75 years. If you change the oil occasionally, you might get 85. But not, not too many are going uh, three digits, right? So if we're going to live in an eternal kingdom, we need bodies suitable for that. And Jesus, when he returns, clothes us appropriate to it. Now, I don't know how many of you would be willing to admit it, especially you men. In fact, I'll speak to the men. I'm not sure how many men could man up like I'm about to man up. I will admit to you, if you don't tell anyone, uh, that I watched some of the royal wedding this week. <laughs> How many men can man up and admit that here today? Okay. How many women are happy to say, I watched the royal wedding and I thought it was, okay, the one, yeah, it was great. Men and women are different, definitely. So if you watched the, the wedding, then you know that there was a lot about clothing in this wedding. Before the wedding actually started, you had the guests that were arriving and the commentators are, you know, the cameras are there and they're trying to identify, you know, so-and-so's dress and who designed it and, you know, and they're, they're walking in and they're dressed to the nines and of course the British women, they've got the hats on, the crazy hats that they're wearing and, and you're like, why do they do that? And, um, I don't know, but that's their thing. And so lots of talk about clothing, right? Especially the bride, because nobody knew who designed the dress and nobody knew who it was going to look like. And so there was this dramatic moment when she gets out, she's at Westminster Abbey and she gets out of the Rolls Royce. And now for the first time, everybody can see, you know, her dress. And of course, uh, she is completely like decked out. I'm sure every nail has been done perfectly. Every hair is exactly in place. Um, and her dress is beautiful and the veil and all the rest. Why? She's about to marry the future king of England. And a man of that stature, I don't know, deserves, requires a woman who is dressed to near perfection. And she was that day. Okay? She was that day. Can you imagine if she would have gotten out of the uh, Rolls Royce there and like sweats in a t-shirt, something like that. Can you imagine people are just, oh, you know, it'd been a scandal of some kind. If, if her hair had been all, you know, out of place, people would, have, oh, it wouldn't have been right. Why? Because she's marrying the king, future king of England. And she needed to be clothed appropriate for that. The passage in front of us right now says, that one of the things that Christ is going to do when he returns is he is going to clothe his bride. We are marrying, spiritually, the king of kings. And these old bodies, all sinful, inclined to sin, carrying the baggage of that, decaying, dying, and all the rest, these are not suitable for the king of kings. And so when Christ returns, the trumpet blows, he cries out, and 
And I love that twinkling of an eye kind of thought where, unlike the video where it's like slow, you know, I'm kind of here and then I'm falling apart. In a moment, Christ, boom, and we are perfected. Clothed with immortality, given our glorified bodies, dressed appropriate as the bride of Christ. And he does it in an instant. Clothing. The second thing that Paul deals with here is the whole matter of death. The whole matter of death. I said, I read a previous, uh, the verse that says that death is the last enemy, right? So if Christ is going to ultimately defeat death, destroy death, how is he going to do that? This is a, this is a difficult challenge. And it says in verse 55, this, then shall come to pass, then, okay, so in the future from where we are right now, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, notice, first of all, that those phrases are in quotations in your Bible. And the reason for that is that they are Old Testament quotations from Isaiah and Hosea, Paul pulls these out and applies them now to this moment when Christ returns. And it says that death is swallowed up in victory. And that Greek word there is used in Hebrews 11 to describe what happened when Pharaoh's army was going through the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, as you know the story, or if you watched the Ten Commandments last Saturday night, You saw this, that in a moment, suddenly, the Red Sea swallowed up, engulfed Pharaoh's army. That's the idea here. Death is swallowed up, engulfed in victory. And we see the Apostle Paul actually doing a little bit of trash talking here. Which you got to love that in the Apostle Paul, don't you think? See a little humanity here. He says... Where now, death, is your victory? Huh? It's not in the Greek, I added it, but that's kind of the sense of it. Huh, huh, huh? Oh, death, where's your sting now? Hmm? Now, why does he say this? And what does this mean? This is what I want to talk with you about today. How does Christ gain the final victory over death. Well, notice the phrase there, O death, where is your sting? Now, sting is an interesting word to describe death. And most of us can probably relate to this. I would think that most of us have been stung before, although I went quite a ways in my life without having been stung. So we might have some young people who have never been stung. But most of us, certainly the adults here, at some point or another, have probably been stung by a bee or a wasp. And let's just all make the sound right now that we do when we're stung. One, two, three. Ouch. That's right. You know that you're stung because it hurts. Do you know why it hurts? I want to show you why it hurts. Here's a close-up of the stinger on a bee. Now that looks pretty nasty, doesn't it? When a bee stings you, it plunges its stinger into your flesh, and it hurts. And Paul here says that death has a stinger. 
And he says the stinger or the sting of death is sin. Okay, so follow this. The weapon that death has against us is sin. That's its stinger. Okay? And this is a reality that goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. Way back in Genesis, uh, at the beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the Garden of Eden, a place of perfection, a place of beauty. And he said this to them in Genesis 2. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you can almost imagine uh, Adam and Eve kind of looking at each other and going, What's death? Do you know what that is? What's he talking about there? And Eve going, I don't know. I've never heard that word before. And I certainly have never seen it around this place because they had never seen it. The Garden of Eden had no death in it. Nothing died. And yet God says, you eat of it, you're going to die. Well, as you know, probably in the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve violate that moral directive from God. And they sin. Okay, Sin is the violation of God's moral command and character. Okay, They violate that. And God now comes and fulfills his promise and says this. I don't have a quote here, but he says, you're going to die now. Okay, You are going to die. And ever since then, every sinner has died. With maybe just one or two exceptions that the smarty pants in, this, in the room here will know who I'm referring to from the Old Testament. But pretty much everybody has died. And the reason that we die is that death has a weapon. And it is sin. And it weaponizes against the sinner when we die. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So you might be here saying, well, that's not fair that I inherit a sin nature. I don't like that. But you know what? You have sinned yourself. We all have. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by action. And so sin enters into the world and we have then death as a result of it. Now, we often think of death as a like a state of existence. So that we'll say she died or she is dead. God views death as an enemy. Okay? It is an enemy. It is a reality. It is a, I don't want to say force because that's not quite exactly right, but it is a force. <laughs> it's come to my mind. Uh, it's not a person, but it's a reality in the world as a result of sin. And we see how God feels about sin, I think, in the story uh, where Jesus goes to Lazarus's tomb. And you may know, may know this story. Jesus had a friend named Lazarus. He hung out with them, spent the night at his home. They were good friends. Lazarus died. And Jesus was not there when he died. Three days later, he arrives. And he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. He knows he's about to raise him from the dead. He knows that. Now, what would you expect the emotion to be in Christ if he has arrived at the tomb of his friend and he's about to raise him from the dead. I mean, imagine if you had that kind of power 
And there was a friend that you heard had died, and you drove to Ohio as quick as you could, and you get there, and you and the people are there, and they're crying, and all the rest, and you're about to raise him from the dead. What would what would you have on your face? I'm thinking a smile. I'm thinking, hey, everyone, I got really good news. Y'all gather around because because I'm about to do something here. You're going to want to see this. It's going to be great. And yet, what do we find is with Christ? He. It's the shortest English verse in the Bible. This side, Jesus wept, right? He wept. And the, the Greek word there for wept, it's not like the sort of tears coming down your face. It's that violent sort of convulsing grieving. He's standing before this grave. And the reality of his enemy death is right there before him. He wept. No doubt for Lazarus. But I think he wept as an indication of how God feels about death. Because God created us for life. He created us to flourish and to thrive. Death is a perversion of that. It's a corruption of the good world that he created. And so Jesus, feeling that reality, weeps at the grave of his friend. Death is an enemy. Death needs to be defeated. And we find that in death, it sinks its stinger deeply into us, and it takes our life. This is a very powerful enemy, death. What Paul does here is he gives a very succinct theology of sin and death. And he says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, did you follow that? Let me read it again. The stinger of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Now, what is this describing? It's describing what we all know to be true. Let me explain it this way. First of all, the law. The law of God is the expression of his character. Okay? He is moral. He is holy. His law gives moral parameters that lifestyle within that law is consistent with God's will and purposes. He wrote it down once. Do you remember where? Mount Sinai. You did watch the Ten Commandments last Saturday, did you not? Oh, I'm sorry, you were at church. That's right. You didn't come to the 930 service. Thank you. Anyway, um, he wrote it down in stone. And we have it in the Word of God. But he has also written that law into the hearts and the consciences of every single human being. We are all moral. Here's what he says, uh, Paul writes in Romans, this. Therefore, just as, wrong, wrong verse, read that one already. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. In other words, they don't have the Bible. They don't know what the Ten Commandments are. But by nature, they do what the law requires. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And that's why no matter where you go in the world, you can go to... You go up to the Eskimos and you can go to the Aborigines and you can go to a remote tribe somewhere. Every human being has a sense of oughtness and right and wrong and you should do this. And guilt and shame is found all over the world. Why? Because God has given his law and he's written it on our hearts. 
and we know what it means to be guilty. Ever since the fall, what has happened then is that our sin nature wants to do what the law says we can't do. In fact, nothing makes us want to do it more than finding out that we shouldn't do it. Have you noticed this? When somebody says, don't do that, suddenly in your heart, what is the one thing that you want to do more than anything else? The thing that they said that you can't do. Why is that? It's because we are sinners. That's the power of the law. It, it like, it empowers, plugs in the electricity, maximum power. It empowers sin in us. A couple of illustrations of this. Of, of this. When I was uh, growing up, my pastor growing up was, was Pastor Gary Moosey. Old Pastor Gary. Different than the old Pastor Gary we have here. Uh, <laughs> See there. <laughs> uh, and I, I love Pastor Gary. He was my pastor through, I think, sixth grade, which is kind of cool for me to think that maybe our young people, even elementary, would someday remember something that I have said. I hope so. Uh, but I remember, I remember when he told this story. I was maybe fourth grade, something like that, but it just stuck in me. Well, 35 years later, I still remember it. He told the story of when he was on vacation with his family. And they were down like in Florida somewhere on the ocean, on the beach. And they were staying in a hotel that was right on the water. And he said, you know, we're, we were there and, and he said that, that they had a, a, like a balcony platform on the sixth story that kind of extended out over the water. And they were up on that balcony and he noticed that there was a sign on the balcony, no fishing. And he looked at that sign and he thought, this is way up here. Who would ever think to fish from here? And so he decided he would go and talk to the staff of the, of the hotel. And so he goes to them and he says, I noticed on the six-story balcony up there, you have a sign that says no fishing. He said, what's the story on that? And they said, we don't know what the story is on that, but we never had anybody fish there until we put the sign up. And you can kind of imagine probably those men there on the balcony seeing that sign going, I, I bet I could catch a fish from here if I tried. And <laughs> suddenly now, what did they want to do? Fish from the balcony. Here's another example of this. And this is one of these kind of legendary stories in my family. If my family was here, they'd all be going, oh, we know where this is going. I have a brother named Scott. He is my younger brother. And Scott was a naughty boy. There's just no other way to say it. <laughs> he was a naughty little boy. And uh, I've also told you that, oh, by the way, he's a pastor now. So uh, young boys here, this is one more reason you need to obey your parents. Because if you don't, God's going to make you a pastor. So <laughs> don't be naughty. Anyway, uh, my family, I've told stories before, my family, we, we had a few horses growing up and did horse shows kind of on the side sort of thing. And so you, you've heard those stories. So to keep the horses in, my dad built a electric fence around 
the pasture. And when he got it done, he and my mom got my brother Scott, he was probably five, and they took him down to the fence. And my dad said to my brother Scott, he said, Scott, don't touch the fence. If you touch the fence, it's going to hurt. Don't touch the fence. You got it? Scott's like, I got it. So my mom and my dad go walking away, and my dad says to my mom, watch this. And of course, they had no more gotten around the corner when Scott went up to the fence. And I would like to describe in detail what was happening here. He stood in front of that wire and he stared the law of dad in the eye. As he stood there, Theological realities are coursing through his veins as spiritual disobedient adrenaline is being pumped into a sinful heart born in sin. Even more than the rest of the siblings, born in sin. (laughs) Theology, more than he could understand at that point, is happening. All that Scott knew was in that moment, the one thing that he wanted to do more than anything else in all the world was to grab that wire. The law is pumping energy into his sinful heart. And his little sin nature without the spirit and without scripture to battle against it was nearly helpless to overcome the obsession. He wanted what the law said he could not have. And this was a theological crisis that is going on in this moment. And so that little naughty boy reached out his hand and grabbed the wire just like his forefathers Adam and Eve did so many years ago it's exactly the same and that's what the law does it makes us because we're sinners want what we cannot have and do what we ought not do it is the power of sin the law empowers sin in the sinner, and it condemns us once we've sinned. And this is a powerful weapon that death has. It only has one weapon, friends. Death has sin. That's it. Sin is empowered by the law. And so we look at the passage and we see Paul saying, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we look at that and we go, well, how did he do it? Where is the victory in this? Well, let me explain that to you, my friends, to our great delight, I trust today. Death to us seems absolute, doesn't it? 
Like we're going to die. There's nothing we can do about it. When somebody's dead, they're dead. It seems like a kind of absolute ultimate sort of reality to us as sinners. But we have to realize that what this passage is doing is it's explaining what death is, how it works, and how it can be overcome. Remember, we have, I'm just walk it again. Death has a stinger. Sin. Sin is empowered by the law. So if, if death is going to be overcome, the law has to be fulfilled and the weapon has to be taken by somebody else in order for us not to get it. Okay? And this is how Christ defeated death. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the power of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What's the power of sin? It is the law. What does this say? He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? He perfectly obeyed it. His life completely satisfied everything that the law required. Which means then that death had no claim on him. So when he was on the cross, God the Father takes our guilt and sin and places it upon Christ. Death weaponizes over Jesus. The law kicks in. Jesus is guilty. He is a sinner. Not that he was, but he was treated as if he was. Our guilt is upon him. So death comes in that moment when Jesus says, it is finished. Death comes, empowered by the law, weaponizes that stinger, and jams it into him. No mercy. Not because he's the son of God. Didn't go nicey-nicey with him. Killed him completely. Christ died for our sins. Now, the fruit of that then is that for all who believe in Christ, Christ took our guilt. His righteous life is laid to our account, which means now that the law has no power against us. It can't accuse us because we are as righteous as the life of Christ. Now, when death comes to the Christian, the believer, and it wants to weaponize against us, there is no guilt in order to empower that weapon. So that the Christian stands before death, in that millisecond before death, without fear, without guilt, and ultimately without death itself. And Christ has done it on the cross. So imagine the moment when death shows up for the body of a Christian. I'm here for the body, death says. Jesus says, it's not yours. Death says, all sinners are mine. Jesus says, by what authority? Death says, the law says that he's mine. Jesus says, I died in his place. Death says, no, no, he's mine 
forever. Jesus says, no, no, I've given him eternal life. He will never die. Death says, his body is mine. Jesus says, only for a little while, because when I come back, it will be mine forever. I am the resurrection and the life. And that is why Paul breaks into this rejoicing in verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because for every single one of us, if we would be honest, we got lots of problems, but death is our big fear. This is the big thing that we, we so desperately need victory over. And we look into Christianity and we look into the gospel and we look into the person, the work of Christ, and we see the one who has gained the victory and gives to us the gift of eternal life. Praise God, as it says. Amen. Now, I want to make something clear here this morning. What I'm talking about is true for those who are believers in Christ. And they are wonderful promises. But I don't want anybody to be sitting here who is not a believer in Christ and say, you know what? Death has no uh, sting. Uh, where's the victory? That's great, man. Let's go to lunch. It's wonderful. Because you know what? It only applies to those who are believers in Christ. Jesus said that himself. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. And today, my dear friend, for these promises and realities to be true for you and for this future to be true for you, comes brings you to the point that so many of us have been at, where I have to come to grips with whether or not I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world who died for my sins who was resurrected on the third day, and whether or not I believe in him in the kind of way where I am now becoming his disciple, and he is my Savior and my Lord. And if you have not come to that point in your life, boy, I pray that today is your day. I had a man after this first service today came up to me, and I don't know, I need to talk to him some more, but I think he might have got saved for service. He said, you know what? I never got it. I never got it. But that story, that I got it. And you're like, what story are you talking about? It's the one I'm about to tell you. Okay? It's the one I'm about to tell you. Because several weeks ago, I had an old timer around here who came up to me and said, when you get to the end of chapter 15, are you going to tell the story of the bee in the car? And they were referring to years ago, I borrowed an illustration from Frank Peretti about the bee in the car. And I thought to myself, that's true. I should use that story. And so in conclusion today, and back by popular demand, (laughs) I would like to tell you the story of the bee in the car. Imagine with me, if you will, a family leaving on vacation. It's a beautiful day. Sun is up. Kids are out of school. The air is crisp and fresh. The spring blooms are all on the, on the trees. They're going off to some week-long vacation. Everybody's excited. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, happy day. They get in the car. They're driving down the road. They got the windows down. The radio's going. They're singing the songs in the car. Are you with me? Life's good. It's a happy, happy day. Well, as they're driving down the road, all of a sudden, into the car flies a big old nasty black bee. 
flying all over the car. The little girl in the back begins to scream. Daddy, daddy, don't let the beast take me. Don't let the beast take me, daddy. Don't let it take me. Don't let it get me, daddy. She's allergic to beasts. If she got stung, she would die in an hour. She knew it, and daddy knew it. And so now pandemonium happens in the car as the bee is swimming around, swimming, flying around in the, in the car. And, and the little girl is in the back and she's, daddy, don't get me. And the dad is with one hand driving, trying to pull off to the side of the road. And with the other hand, as the bee's going by, he's trying to, he's trying to catch the bee and everyone's going crazy in the car. Well, all of a sudden the bee lands on the windshield of the car. And the dad, driving with one hand, pins it against the windshield. And then slowly works his hand and cups the bee in his hand. And so now he has the bee in his hand. Like this. So it's in in his fist. And he waits. And in his fist. And he waits. In his fist. Until finally... Oh, oh, and he opens his hand and the bee flies out of his hand. It's flying around and the little girl in the back, daddy, daddy, don't let it get me. Don't let it get me, daddy, daddy. No. And the dad goes, honey, 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 honey. Wait, wait, it's okay. It's okay. Look, I want you to see something. And he holds out his hand to her and in the palm of his hand, There's a big old nasty black stinger. And he says to her, he says, Honey, that bee can't sting you because I had it sting me. There's nothing to fear. And if you want to know the essence of Christianity, it's this. Jesus extends his hands to humanity. And he says, Look at my scars. Death cannot sting you because I have taken the stinger for you. There is nothing to fear. And so we say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.